0: Episode 32 Local birds fight over the ripest berries. Your stone stairs and metal railings, too hot to touch. The blub 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 of the passing cycles is midsummer. Greetings and welcome in to the Patuxent General. This week we celebrate cherries. They're in season here in Rhode Island, and the PG team couldn't be more excited. They get to test my experiments. Our drinks are cherry soda and a Captain Cheer wine, and our dish is a cherry crisp. Hang in to the end for this week's gardening tip after the continued reading of the case of Charles Dexter Ward by H.P. Lovecraft. But first, I would like to thank our Patreon subscribers. Like Othnell. These generous gardeners help us tend the magical fairy house that is the Patuxent General. If you would like to join their horticultural support, please go to the link in the show notes, where your donation will be received with magical beings dancing to a song of your name. But first, Cherry Soda. At this time of the year black cherries come into season here in the northeast. Now perhaps you are thinking of red cherries that get so ripe that they are black. This is a different fruit. Black cherries are tiny and dark. The pit is about half the size of the cherry itself. The tree is indigenous, not like the red fleshy cherries. It would take an astronomical amounts of work to make a black cherry pie, but black cherry jelly or syrup is easy, so there are plenty of recipes for a black cherry, but not pastry. In 1926, the Carolina Syrup Company trademarked Cheer Wine, a cherry soda. This soda was made from local ingredients in the area they had processed sugars and black cherries. Plus water equals drinks. So check this out, almost at the same time, each year, as the black cherries, the red cherries also peak. Jams, jellies, sodas, and alcoholic drinks all of the season as well. You can still to this day get Cheerwine. Uh, just, it's difficult to get here in the northern states, but you can have it sent to you on the internet. For this drink, you will need a tall glass, two fresh cherries, Two ounces Captain Morgan, three ounces Cheerwine Soda, or, up here in the Northeast, Stewart's Black Cherry Wishniak Soda. Crushed iced enough to fill the glass. Fill the tall glass with ice, then add rum, then top with Cheerwine and stir gently. Top with two fresh cherries on a skewer and enjoy a black cherry explosion. Cherry Crisp Alright, here you are, hip deep in cherries, it's too hot to really bake or be fussy, what to do? Cherry crisp. It doesn't cook for very long, it's easy to make, and it's a great refrigerated breakfast for the next morning. This is also a great go-to for any berry or apples or pears, really any seasonal fruit would be yummy. So, for this recipe you will need a half a teaspoon of cinnamon, one quarter cup salted butter, melted, one quarter cup flour. 1 quarter cup oats, 1 half cup brown sugar, 4 cups of pitted cherries, a large baked dish, preferably glass. Preheat your oven to 375 degrees. First step, mix the topping together in a bowl. Combine these items. The melted butter, cinnamon, flour, oats, and brown sugar, then set aside. Put your fruit in the bake dish, then add one-third of the topping to it and mix in. Then put the rest on top. Put it in the oven and bake for 30 minutes until lightly browned and boobly. Serve hot or cold, topped with ice cream or whipped cream, or plain chilled, any way you want. Just enjoy. I want to tell you about my friend Mike and his Electromagnetic Pinball Museum and Restoration Arcade. It's an all-inclusive place to relax and share anything related to modern pinball, EM pinball, and arcade games. A group of pinball and arcade fans with an addiction to games of all kinds and LEGO 2. $10 gets you free play on pinball and arcade games all day. You can find them at 881 Main Street, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, or online at www.electromagneticpinballmuseum.com. And now to continue our House on the Corner series, the continued reading of The Case of Charles Dexter Ward by H.P. Lovecraft, Chapter 5, Section 4. So that was what the Lekithoi contained, the monstrous fruit of unhallowed rites and deeds presumably won or cowed to such submission as to help when called up by some hellish incantation in the defense of the blasphemous master or the questioning of those who were not so willing. Willette shuddered at the thought of what he had been pouring in and out of his hands and for a moment felt an impulse to flee in panic from the cavern of hideous shelves and their silent and perhaps watchful sentinels. Then he thought of the Materia. In the myriad falron jugs on the other side of the room, salts too, and if not the salts of guards, then the salts of what? Oh, God! Could it be possible that here lay the mortal relics of half the titan thinkers in all the ages, snatched by supreme ghouls from crypts where the world thought them safe, and subject to the beck and call of madmen who sought to drain their knowledge for a still wilder end, whose ultimate effect would concern, as poor Charles still hinted in his frantic note, all civilization, all natural law, perhaps even the faint of the solar system and the universe, and Marinus Bickwell Willette had sifted their dust through his hands. (sighs) He noticed a small door at the farther end of the room, and calmed himself enough to approach it and examine the crude sign chiseled above. It was only a symbol, but it filled him with vague spiritual dread a morbid dreaming friend of his had once drawn it on a paper and told him a few things about what it means in the dark abyss of sleep. It was the sign of cough and the dreamers see fixed above the archway of a certain black tower standing alone in twilight. And Willette did not like what his friend Randolph Carter had said of its power, but a moment later he forgot the sign as he recognized a new acrid odor in the stench-filled air. This is a chemical rather than an animal smell, and came clearly from the room behind the door. And it was, unmistakably, the same odor which had saturated Charles Ward's clothes on the day the doctors had taken him away. So was it here that the youth had been interrupted by the final summons? He was wiser than old Joseph Kerwin, for he had not resisted. Ouellette, boldly determined to penetrate every wonder and nightmare this nether realm might contain, seized the small lamp and crossed the threshold. A wave of nameless fright rolled out to meet him, and he yielded to no whim and deferred to no intuition. There was nothing alive to harm him, and he would not be stayed in his piercing of this eldritch cloud which engulfed his patient. The room beyond the door was of medium size, and had no furniture save a table, a single chair, and two groups of curious machines with clamps and wheels, which Willette recognized after a moment as medieval instruments of torture. On one side of the door stood a rack of savage whips, above which were some shelves bearing empty rows of shallow, pedestalled cups of lead. On the other was the table, with a powerful argand lamp, a pad and pencil, and two stoppered lecthoi from the shelves outside, set down at irregular places as if temporary or in haste. Let lighted the lamp and looked carefully at the pad to see what notes young Ward might have been jotting down when interrupted, but found nothing more intelligible than the following disjointed fragments in that crabbed Kerwin writing, which shed no light on the case as a whole. B died not, escaped into walls and found place below, saw old V, saith sabuth and learned ye way, raised young Saga thrice, and was ye next day delivered. F sought to wipe out all knowing how to raise those from outside. As the strong argon blaze lit up the entire chamber, the doctor saw that the wall opposite the door between the two groups of turning appliances in the corner was covered with pegs from which hung a set of shapeless-looking robes and a rather dismal yellowish white. Far more interesting were the two vacant walls, both of which were thickly covered with mystic symbols and formulae roughly chiseled in the smooth-dressed stone. Damp floor also bore marks of carving. And with little difficulty, Willette deciphered a huge pentagram in the center, with a plain circle about three feet wide, halfway between this and each corner. In one of these four circles, near where a yellowish robe had been flung carelessly down, there stood a shallow kylix of some sort found in the shelves above the whip-rack, And just outside the periphery were one of the Faeran jugs from the shelves outside the room, its tag numbered 118. This was unstoppered and proved upon inspection to be empty. But the explorer saw with a shiver that the Kylix was not. Within its shallow area, and saved from scattering only by the absence of wind in this sequestered cavern, lay a small amount of dry, dull-greenish, effervescent powder, which must have belonged to the jug and Roulette almost reeled at the implications that came sweeping over him as he correlated little by little the different elements and antecedents on the scene. The whips and the instruments of torture, the dust or salts from the jug of materia, the two lecthoi from the custode's shelf, the robes, the formula on the walls, the notes on the pad— The hints from letters and legends, the thousand glimpses, doubts, and suppositions which had all come to torment the friends and parents of Charles Ward, all these engulfed the doctor in a tidal wave of horror as he looked at the dark greenish powder outspread in the pedestaled leaden kylix on the floor. With an effort, however, Willette pulled himself together and began studying the formulae chiseled into the walls. From the stained and encrusted letters, it was obvious that they were carved in Joseph Kerwin's time. And their text was such to be vaguely familiar to one who had read much Kerwin material or delved extensively into the history of magic. One, the doctor clearly recognized as to what Mrs. Ward heard her son chanting on that ominous Good Friday a year before. And what an authority had told him was a very terrible invocation addressed to secret gods outside the normal spheres. It was not spelled here exactly as Mrs. Ward had set it down from memory, nor yet as the authority had shown it to him in the forbidden pages of Elpheus Levi. But its identity was unmistakable, and such words as Sabaoth, Metroton, Alam Sin, and Zariotnik... "...sent a shudder of fright through the searcher who had seen and felt so much cosmic abomination just around the corner. This was on the left-hand wall as one entered the room. The right-hand wall was no less thickly inscribed, and Willette felt a start of recognition as he came upon a pair of formulae so frequently occurring in the recent notes in the study. They were, roughly speaking, the same." with the ancient symbols of dragon's head and dragon's tail heading them as in word Scribblings. But the spelling differed quite widely from that of the modern versions, as if old Kerwin had had a different way of recording sound, or as if the later study had evolved more powerful and perfected variants of the invocations in question. The doctor tried to reconcile the chiseled version with the one that still ran persistently in his head and found it hard to do. Where the script he had memorized began Yagnath yag, nas, yag salaf. Where the script he had memorized began Yagnath yag, nas, yag The epigram started out as I and the yag which to his mind would seriously interfere with the simplification of the second word. Round as the later text was, into his consciousness, the discrepancy disturbed him, and he found himself chanting the first of the formulae aloud in an offer to square the sound he conceived with the letters he found carved. Weird and menacing in the abyss of ancient blasphemy rang in his voice. The accents keyed to a droning sing song, rather though to a spell of the past and unknown, or through that hellish example of the dull, godless wail from the pits whose inhuman cadences rose and fell rhythmically in the distance through the stench of the darkness. Yagsanath, Yagsanath, Helab, Yaythrab, Ahab. Thank you again for joining us here at the PG. If you would like to contact us here at the General to find out more or to book our pop-up General store, or if you would like to tell a ghost story, our email is jess at patuxetgeneral.com. This week's gardening tip is to tie together tall flowers gently with soft strings so that they don't get weighed down by their top heaviness and fall over. That does it for us today. We'll meet you back here next time at the Patuxent General. A Something for Posterity production, pre-recorded in Patuxent.